President Biden is marking the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with a secret visit to Kyiv and a trip to Poland. It's Monday, February 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Hybrid vehicles were the original clean cars, but environmentalists are questioning their role in combating climate change. I believe this wonderful Prius green car eventually will be phased out. Meta seems to be taking a cue from Twitter and says it will now charge users more than $12 a month to be verified on Facebook and Instagram. What Zuckerberg is saying people get is added security and direct access to customer support. Also, you'll meet the 2023 School Counselor of the Year. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's back in Poland hours after he was seen walking through the war-torn Ukrainian capital alongside his host, President Volodymyr Zelensky. The White House says Biden's visit in the middle of Ukraine's war with Russia was historic. 80-year-old U.S. leader reaffirming his country's resolve to stand by Ukraine. He pledged an additional $500 million in military support. Biden's visit also appeared to upstage Russian President Vladimir Putin's planned address to his nation tomorrow ahead of the first anniversary of the start of Russia's invasion. NPR's Veronica Kisses has more. Biden met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the presidential palace in the center of Kyiv, an area Russian troops were quickly expected to take control of nearly a year ago when they invaded. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Biden says he is seeking half a billion dollars of additional assistance for Ukraine and new sanctions on Russia. The two leaders visited a makeshift war memorial at St. Michael's Cathedral as air raid sirens rang out over the city. Zelensky called Biden's visit the most important in the history of the Ukraine-U.S. relationship. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Following a mass shooting on the campus of Michigan State University, a group of educators and advocates are pushing Michigan lawmakers to pass legislation to combat gun violence. Arjun Tucker of member station WKAR reports. Outside the Michigan Capitol building, teachers and activists with the group March for Our Lives said legislators should enact common-sense gun restrictions to make schools safe. David Hogg, a survivor of the 2018 Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, called on Republicans to break gridlock by collaborating with Democrats on gun safety legislation. What we're doing right now is the country is not working. The cycle that we're in of endless debate, inaction, is not working. Democrats have introduced bills in the state Senate that would implement universal background checks, safe storage requirements, and red flag laws. For NPR News, I'm Arjun Tucker in Lansing. Actor and producer Alec Baldwin's looking at far less time in prison if convicted of cinematographer Helena Hutchins' shooting death on the movie set of Rust in 2021. Prosecutors are downgrading the involuntary manslaughter charges after Baldwin's defense team argued that the DA incorrectly based a gun enhancement charge on a law that was not in effect at the time of the shooting. Instead of facing a minimum of five years in prison, Baldwin faces a maximum 18 months if convicted. Clanging chandelier signaling another aftershock in Turkey today. A resident, Atai, capturing a tembler that sometime later local media would report was strong enough to kill three people and injure hundreds more. The U.S. Geological Survey says the quake was a magnitude 6.3, its impact adding to the heavy losses inflicted since the initial 7.8 earthquake earlier this month in Turkey and Syria. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Tonight is the 20th anniversary of the Station nightclub fire in Rhode Island. 100 people died in the fire, including more than 30 people from Massachusetts. At least 230 other people were injured. Survivors, first responders, and elected officials gathered yesterday for a memorial mass in Warwick. Father Bob Marciano was among the speakers. Even though 20 years has passed since that fateful night that changed so many lives forever, pain may remain. Yet our consolation comes not from answers for our head, but rather from comfort for our hearts. A public memorial at the site of the nightclub fire opened in 2017. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss is among a delegation taking part in a five-day trip to Taiwan. The group met with the head of the Taiwanese legislature and is expected to meet with the president of Taiwan. Auchincloss is a member of the new House Select Committee focused on competition with China. Tensions between the U.S. and China are on the rise after the Biden administration accused China of sending a spy balloon that the U.S. shot down. China also has indicated it might provide weapons to Russia for its war in Ukraine. As of last November, Massachusetts residents can no longer throw out an old mattress in the trash. State Senator Edward Kennedy says some communities do have mattress recycling available, but many do not. He's filed a bill that would look for ways to make mattresses recyclable statewide. Kennedy says he filed similar legislation during the last session. I think one of the roadblocks during the last session was the mattress companies because they would be paying money for this. So hopefully we'll be able to work that out and we come up with language that will be or an amendment to the bill that I filed that will make it be palatable to everybody. He says the state needs to find a solution or else there will just be old used mattresses all over the place. The City of Presidents is hosting its annual President's Day Winterfest today in Quincy. Events at Hancock Adams Common include musical performances, animal performances, and an ice sculpture demonstration. The festival runs until 7 this evening. In sports this afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1. to one. That's the Bruins' fourth win in a row. The Bees maintain their best record in the league. Before the game, the Bruins honored veteran center David Krejci for recently playing in his 1,000th game with the team. It's 58 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 30s tonight. A slight chance of snow in the morning tomorrow, then rain, highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden is now back in Poland after a whirlwind secret trip to Ukraine. In Warsaw, Biden will reiterate that the United States intends to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. His message is for Ukrainians, of course, but also for European allies and American voters at home. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is on the line now from Warsaw. And Asma, this the secret trip to Kiev. I'm just thinking of the amount of planning and security involved in pulling something like this off. It's mind-boggling. Do we have any more detail on how it came together? 
It, it really is. Um, it was quite a logistical feat. Uh, administration officials, you know, held a call with reporters shortly after Biden left Kyiv. And, you know, they told us that this was risky, but uh, that ultimately President Biden thought it was worth the risk. Um, we know that he traveled via train from Poland overland, and he really had just a basic skeleton crew with him. Uh, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that this was unprecedented to have the president of the United States visit a war zone where the U.S. military does not have any control of the critical infrastructure. I mean, this is not, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan where there were U.S. boots on the ground. Uh, you know, he told us, though, that Russia was given a heads up. We did notify the Russians that President Biden would be traveling to Kyiv. We did so uh, some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. And Mary Louise, he would not say how the Russians responded to that message. He did also point out, though, that Russians still control parts of Ukrainian territory. So this trip that Biden made was not, you know, a celebration in his words, but an affirmation of the ongoing commitment from the U.S. Right. To that point, he is planning another big speech tomorrow there in Warsaw. Tell me what you're watching for. That's right. Biden is going to be returning to the historic royal castle in Warsaw. And he spoke at this very same site 11 months ago. At that time, you know, Russia had just begun the invasion of Ukraine. And he was really trying to rally the world to support Ukraine. Um, now here we are just days away from the one year mark of Russia's invasion. And, you know, Biden's returning here to Poland again to make the strategic case. Of course, you know, I would point out that the conflict is at a fundamentally different point now that European security environment has completely changed. And I will say, you know, Biden is abroad. He's here in Poland, but he's no doubt speaking also to a U.S. audience. And I think that point is key because some recent polls have shown that support for the war is softening. A few vocal Republican lawmakers have begun publicly questioning the financial aid that the U.S. is giving Ukraine. And so experts say part of what Biden needs to do on Tuesday is make the case for why this war continues to matter outside of Ukraine. And beyond the big speech tomorrow, what else is on his agenda? He'll be meeting with Poland's president as well. And, you know, I think coming to Poland is in many ways strategic. Poland is this transit for both military equipment and people. You have supplies going into Ukraine. You have refugees who've been coming uh, from Ukraine into Poland, an estimated 1.5 million refugees. Uh, then on Wednesday, Biden will also meet with additional leaders, um, leaders of the Bucharest Nine. This is a group of countries that quite literally are on the front lines of the collective NATO defense and were closely tied with Moscow during the Cold War. The White House says they'll discuss continued efforts to cooperate and support Ukraine. Uh, you know, I will say, though, that ultimately what the president is trying to do here is continue to maintain unity in the face of whatever might unfold with this conflict in the coming months. That is NPR's Asma Khalid in Warsaw traveling with President Biden. Thank you. Happy to do it. Hybrid vehicles are the original clean car, and they're still popular with car shoppers. But when it comes to the fight against climate change, there's a big debate. Are hybrids a help or a hindrance? NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. 25 years ago, adding an electric motor to a gasoline engine was cutting edge. There's a change happening. It begins with Prius. Toyota's revolutionary hybrid vehicle. This ad featured oil pumps snapping free from their bases and walking away. Transportation is finally evolving. But transportation kept evolving beyond gasoline. Today, electric vehicles are the fastest growing sector of the auto market. And prominent voices on climate change now say that hybrids should be history. 
Catherine Garcia runs the Sierra Club's Clean Transportation for All campaign. She is critical of Toyota for its plan to keep making hybrid vehicles instead of switching to just electrics. Garcia knows this might feel weird. The Prius? An environmental problem? The Prius is a beloved car for many environmentalists. But which is more important, making gas-powered vehicles better or phasing them out as soon as possible? Right now, we are facing a climate crisis, and we absolutely need to reduce our dependency on fossil fuel cars. And yes, a hybrid vehicle is better for the planet and human health than a gas guzzler. But all the money and brain power that auto companies put toward developing more hybrids, that's money and brain power they're not putting toward the switch to all electric vehicles. Some people call hybrids a bridge to EVs. But folks like Garcia say building a bridge takes time, and the climate doesn't have the luxury of time. Toyota? still believes in hybrids. Choose Toyota Hybrid. The company argues it's worth it to make today's vehicles less bad, even if it makes the overall switch to EVs take longer. You know, I guess we're taking a pragmatic approach to this. Cooper Erickson is with Toyota North America. Everyone agrees a rapid transition to EVs poses enormous challenges. Building vehicles, getting battery minerals, building out charging infrastructure. So Toyota argues don't count hybrids out yet. Yes, they still burn gasoline, but they burn less of it. And they're cheap. They don't need a charger. And their batteries are a lot smaller. So you can make a lot more of them. It's quantum leap better if you use these battery resources in a reasonable way. At this point, the auto industry agrees that gas-powered cars are on their way out eventually. But how long will that take? And what role will hybrids play? Toyota has moved up its timeline for electrification. It's still not as aggressive as many of its peers. And Ericsson says Toyota's comfortable with that. We've been ridiculed for being progressive in greenhouse gas emissions and now we're being ridiculed for not being progressive enough in greenhouse gas emissions. I've seen all this in my career with the company. But this is not just a question of ridicule. There's a big question about requirements. California, New York, and the European Union have all passed laws essentially banning new gas-powered cars by 2035. And that includes traditional hybrids. Margot Ogre used to run transportation and air quality at the EPA. She was thrilled when the first Prius came out. I was one of the first buyers, and I was excited because I want to walk the talk. But these days, in her driveway, you'll find an all-electric car. And her hope for hybrids is that before too long, they're phased out entirely. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. With former President Jimmy Carter in hospice care, today's President's Day observance in his hometown, Plains, Georgia, took on extra meaning. People there were reflecting on Carter's time in office and the work he did in the years that followed. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Grant Blankenship has more from Plains. The centerpiece of the Jimmy Carter National Historic Site is the former Plains High School, Carter's alma mater. And today, the old auditorium, with its folding wooden seats, was decked out as it has been for over a decade on President's Day, with flags, red, white, and blue bunting, and memorabilia belonging to historian Lawrence Cook laid out for his presentation. You know, it's ironic today that I'm giving this presentation on the lesser-known presidents, and I would say 
as a historian, I'll make this statement, I believe he's the best known president around the world. Cook says Carter loves these talks about the nearly forgotten details of presidential history and is usually here on President's Day. This year, of course, is different. And so Cook says he was tempted to change course. But I knew that President Carter would want me to stay with the planned program and not make it all about him. In conversation around planes, people echo the theme of a selfless Jimmy Carter again and again. Like Carter, Rebecca Davenport is a fan of these President's Day talks and planes. And she has her own piece of memorabilia, a 1977 Carter inaugural pin hanging from her sweater. He's our only president from Georgia, so why not wear it today, right? And it's not a replica, it's the real deal. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so I'm celebrating him today. So what is she celebrating? I think his concern for the underdog as a, someone who might have had a controversial presidency, but afterwards, I think the whole country can confirm that we admire him and his spirit. Bernadette Bacchus and Spencer Horn were passing through planes on vacation when they stopped in the main street, across from where out-of-town journalists are already gathering. Bacchus says they like to cram as much history as they can into these road trips. And they came today with knowledge of Carter's condition. Yeah, we were in the hotel room last night, just sitting in the room, just watching TV, and we looked at our phones and we were like, oh my God, he's, you know, he went into hospice care. You know, it's kind of sad. Bacchus says she's read a few of Carter's books, and she wishes more people saw him the way she does. Well, I mean, how do I say this? And he was definitely into human rights, the respect of people, and things like that. And it's just a shame people don't consider him a good president with what, what he did do. Like Bacchus, Angelique Shimon says she was shocked by the news that Carter's in hospice. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of breaking my heart, and I feel very sad for his wife and his family to have such a gentle, sweet soul, you know, leave our world. For Shimon, it's Carter's lived example of the central tenet of his Christian faith that inspires. As they say in the Bible, um, love everybody. It never says love everybody, but it just says love everybody. It's a lesson Shimon says she hopes she remembers, even after Carter passes away. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Plains, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 418, and coming up in about 10 minutes, Meta seems to be modeling itself after Twitter. The social media company now says if you want to get verified on Facebook and Instagram, you will need to fork over at least $12 a month. In business news, a Florida-based cannabis company that has dispensaries in Boston, Somerville, and Dracut is hosting a series of clinics to help people expunge their records of cannabis convictions. Air Wellness, Inc. will hold its Massachusetts clinic at noon on Saturday at Connection United Methodist Church in Somerville. The company says it aims to empower people affected by the war on drugs by giving them a fresh start. On Wall Street, the stock market is closed today for the federal holiday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It is 58 degrees in Boston. Some clouds tonight, lows in the low 30s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow in the morning and then rain highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. When Lawrence Bartley was released from prison five years ago, he linked up with the Marshall Project and started reporting on the criminal justice system. Now he's hosting a new show that is airing weekly inside prisons and jails in 48 states. This is Inside Story, the only show about the system by people who lived it. I'm Lawrence Bartley. When I spoke with Bartley, he explained to me that including the perspectives of formerly incarcerated people just makes for richer coverage of the prison system, both for the public who can see the show online and for the people on the inside. There are many incarcerated people that read our journalism and, and news inside or see it in Inside Story and kind of pump their fists in the air like, finally, someone is telling the truth. Finally, we're seeing exactly what's happening. And this is my story. Yeah. Well, let me let me talk about you for a little bit. You served about 27 years in prison overall for multiple convictions, including murder. Mm-hmm. You were only 17 when you were sent to prison. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Let me ask you, how do you think entering prison when you were so young, how do you think that shaped the way you see the criminal justice system today? When you're a 17-year-old going in, you're just conditioned to think that adults are there to protect you. Mm-hmm. But I found that adults weren't there to protect me most of the time. Mm-hmm. Plopped into a situation where I had to learn how to shave, I had to learn how to be a man, and navigate the system in a way that was very traumatic to people like me, who were as young as I was. Mm-hmm. But once I was able to get a hang of it in a way that I can survive, then I figure out different defense mechanisms and how to cope with my situation. And that was education. Well, thank God that experience in many ways strengthened you, especially as a journalist. Your first episode delves into how children are treated inside prisons. And, you know, something the lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson said really stuck with me. He was talking about how if a society is going to incarcerate children, it should believe in their ability to change. Mm-hmm. And I think to take away someone's possibility for growth and change is irresponsible. It's punitive without purpose. And a system that punishes people without purpose is a system that loses its legitimacy. You know, Lawrence, I was curious because listening to an interview like this one with Brian Stevenson and other interviews throughout this series, was it difficult to get correctional facilities on board to air these shows? Because 
in many moments, these shows encourage us to think critically about the way society treats people who are incarcerated. Yes, there's so many different prisons and jails. And the way the rules are set up, they have the discretion to say what they can let in and what they won't. You know what I mean? But the people who run the facilities are meant to follow those. And a lot of times there's some of them who don't really agree with those rules. So it is my hope that creating a series like this, that we have some of those people who are in the power to say yes or no, to yeah. look at it and say, let me look at the way I'm running my facilities to see how it stacks up against what's in this episode. If it's consistent with what's in this episode, I'm hoping that the inherent good in people will say, well, I, I need to make some change and, and I'm not going to block the episode from coming and I'm going to let people see it. Did you encounter any resistance to airing these shows inside certain prisons or have any correctional facilities tried to exert editorial control over the content of any of these episodes? They cannot. They cannot exert editorial control Did at they all. try? Have any? No, they haven't tried, but there have been some states that have said that, oh, no, I don't think we, we want this inside of our facility because it's kind of critical. Yeah. You sit down in the third episode with two Baltimore City police detectives known as Dre and Big H, Andreas Severino and Ralph Wharton. They both host a podcast called The Silverback Chronicles. And you had some pretty pointed questions for them about interrogations. And I just want to play a little of one exchange where you reflect on your own experience. When I was arrested, right. I said I want a right to remain silent. They said, yeah, you're going to get your in there, and I'm a right wow. to whoop your mother. Yeah, that policing culture is it up for everybody. Everybody else. Because there's always an old school police culture. There's always an old school business that people just were under and they followed. And that was just how things were done. And that's it is horrible. It really is horrible. We're, sorry, even today, we're sorry that you went through that. That's ridiculous. It's tough to hear, but... Appreciate that. And then Detective Horton goes on to make the point that police reform has been huge. That's his word. That things are changing in police departments in terms of how they treat the people they interact with. Let me ask you, Lawrence, as you have worked with the Marshall Project and reported out stories for Inside Story, have you come away with that same impression? Well, no. When you see what happened with Tyree Nichols in Memphis, that highlights that things haven't changed. We see over and over again people being killed by police officers and not much happened to them. Sure, what, what happened to Derek Chauvin, him being sentenced, that was a step. But there are other people who felt like they don't get justice. So I won't say that the system is not making steps towards change, but I will say the system has a long way to go. Yeah. Well, in one of the recurring features in this series, I love that you you also profile formerly incarcerated people who have gone on to lead really productive lives, like Fernando Ruiz, who's an executive chef in Santa Fe now, and Lunel, the comedian. I talked about the strip searches and the degradation of that. And then from the mindset of the person doing it, like, do you know if they're just trying to be professional or they're enjoying it too much? Or, you know, you don't know what's going on in their head. And then the mystery meat with what is this, pimento and olive loaf? What the, you know, 
Yeah, that was a lot of comedy that I drew from being in jail. Well, Lunell's been on the HBO show Hacks. She's reportedly got a Netflix special coming up. It made me feel that your series, it isn't just about informing people in prison about the criminal justice system. It's also about giving them hope. Absolutely. You know, people who are incarcerated, including myself, I was told over and over again how horrible I was. But no one tells us that you can be a Lunell. Yeah. No one says you could be a Chef Ruiz. You know, we've heard tons of feedback from people who are formerly incarcerated, or even people who normally thought of people who commit crimes as as folks that should never return back to society, an afterthought, just horrible people, and um, are now kind of softening and looking at people as people. Sure, they committed some bad acts that got them there, but let's give them an opportunity to, to be people because 95% of people who are incarcerated are coming out someday. And um, this series opens their eyes to what's possible for them, allows them to dream, and allows them to prepare right now from where they are to becoming someone everyone else thought that they couldn't be. Like becoming another Lawrence Bartley. <laughs> Lawrence Bartley is co-creator of the new series Inside Story in partnership with Vice News and The Marshall Project. Thank you very much for sharing this time with us, Lawrence. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you so, so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and coming up in about 15 minutes... Hollywood generally takes something of a break in January and February as it gears up for the busier season. You'll get a preview of movies on the way this spring. Join us at City Space tomorrow. Former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter discusses his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. It's 58 degrees in Boston, some clouds tonight, and lows dropping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow in the morning. After that, some rain and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, going to school as an act of resistance. In his new memoir, School Clothes, local author and professor Jarvis Givens collects memories of going to school as a black child in America, including from Boston legends from Phyllis Wheatley to Henry Louis Gates. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden has arrived in Poland after making an unannounced visit to the Ukrainian capital today. During a stop in Kyiv, Biden pledged an additional $500 million in support for Ukraine. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the announcement comes three days before the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of the country. President Biden met Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv and announced a new aid package made up largely of ammunition. Ukraine has been burning through its ammo supply at a rapid rate. 
The U.S. will send more rocket, artillery, and mortar rounds to be used with existing U.S. weapon systems that are now a key part of the Ukrainian arsenal. Military analysts widely expect Russia and Ukraine to carry out offensives in the near term. A Russian offensive in the eastern region of Donbass may already be underway. After his brief visit to Ukraine, Biden headed to neighboring Poland, where he'll meet with U.S. allies that are also backing Ukraine. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Another powerful aftershock has rocked parts of southern Turkey. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from a Turkish city about several hours from where the quake struck. We felt the earthquake here in Gaziantep at this baklava restaurant. We're about a three-hour drive from the source of the earthquake in the Hatay region. People from the second floor calmly walked outside. The chandelier swung. There are some initial Turkish television reports of some buildings that were damaged in the major earthquake two weeks ago, just now collapsing in this quake. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin reporting. The magnitude 6.3 earthquake comes two weeks after a massive tremor killed tens of thousands of people across Turkey and Syria. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of a New Hampshire-based nonprofit are flying to Poland today. They're headed to Ukraine later this week, ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Common Man for Ukraine will be delivering supplies, including 15 tons of food, 500 sleeping bags, warm clothes, and candy for children at 14 Ukrainian orphanages. The group's co-founder, Susan Matheson, says despite the dangers of traveling to Ukraine, the trip is worth it. Without electricity, the kids are sitting there in their parkas. They're eating a meal by flashlight. When we come in with big smiles and unexpected treats, it's a bright day for the kids. This will be the group's fourth trip to Ukraine since Russia began the war. Common Man for Ukraine also continues accepting donations through its website. Quincy High School officials have canceled the boys' basketball team's final two games of the season. The decision followed a locker room fight between a current team member and a former player who quit the team last month. In a letter to parents, school officials said they canceled the season because many team members knew about the upcoming fight and did not report it to their coach or other staff. The John F. Kennedy Library in Boston celebrated President's Day with festivities today. Among the events, actors portraying American historical figures took to the stage in a mock news conference. Audrey Stuck-Gerard played First Lady Abigail Adams. Being the wife of the President of the United States, it became more of a duty for me to be on hand nearby. While he was Vice President, we had spent some time with me in Massachusetts simply to save money. The talks will be archived online. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin is the acting governor until Thursday night. Both Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll are out of state during school vacation week. Healey is on a family trip to Florida. Driscoll is spending the week with family in Georgia. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. 
This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1. to It is 58 degrees in Boston, with lows tonight dropping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow in the morning, then rain, and highs tomorrow in the low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Getting verified on Facebook and Instagram used to be free. Now it's going to cost around $12 a month. CEO Mark Zuckerberg said over the weekend that he's launching a paid subscription service called Meta Verified. It looks a lot like the one Elon Musk just introduced at Twitter. NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr is here to talk about it. Hey, Dara. Hello. So why is Facebook going to start charging people to have verified accounts after 20 years? So Facebook has been having a hard few months. Um, It's seen plummeting stock prices, and so Zuckerberg might be wanting to make more money. He also says verifying accounts cost a lot, and so he's looking to cover some of those costs. He also may be taking cue from Elon Musk. When he bought Twitter last fall, he had an edict that anyone who wanted a verified account had to pay. So now Zuckerberg seems to be following that playbook. And is this going to be available to anyone? Yeah, anyone can join on. Um, They have to pay. And in the past, verified accounts used to just be for public figures like the president, Cardi B, journalists. And now if you pay, you can also be one of those verified people. It's $12 a month if you're on the web version. It'll be $15 a month if you want it for your iPhone. Okay, so annually it's more than $140 a year. What do people get for that? Yes, $140 a year. That's more than an account at Netflix or HBO. The verification, which looks like a little blue badge, which similar to Twitter, is for both Facebook and Instagram. And what Zuckerberg is saying people get is added security and direct access to customer support. So for a while now, a lot of people have complained about not being able to get help when they go to Facebook's homepage and also not being able to find a person to talk to. Zuckerberg didn't give any details about what this added customer support is. He just said that that you'll be able to get, quote unquote, direct access to customer support. And also added account security. What, What does that mean for people who are using Facebook and Instagram? So we should look at first at what happened at Twitter. When Twitter opened up its verified accounts to all users, we saw a huge tidal wave of spam and impersonation, and that caused all sorts of problems. But with Facebook, it's a little bit different. Zuckerberg said that they are going to use actual government IDs to verify people, but that doesn't mean that some spam accounts won't be able to get through. Do you think this pay for verification model is here to stay? It's hard to say. A lot of tech companies have been having financial troubles over the past few months, and it seems they're trying out different ways to boost their bottom line. What we do know is that for Twitter, it hasn't gone so well. As of January, that's just two months into its service, less than 300,000 people have signed up for that blue check mark. That's less than 0.1% of all of its users. 
It's NPR Tech correspondent Dara Kerr. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We are a little more than halfway through what has been the most normal school year since the pandemic began. For many students, the transition has not been easy, and that is where school counselors come in. Amid reports of a growing youth mental health crisis, NPR's Janaki Mehta spoke with one standout counselor about how to support students through this school year. Good morning, Riley. Have a good day, Joseph. Meredith Drawn begins her mornings like most, with a cup of coffee in hand. But as she sips her coffee, she's also greeting about 350 children by name at B. Everett Jordan Elementary, where she works. It's in a rural North Carolina town called Graham. Kids want to feel known and want to feel loved, and greeting them by name is one way we can do that. And it's also a practice that's supported by research. Drawn's data-driven approach and her passion for her students have earned her the title of 2023 School Counselor of the Year. This school year, many students have struggled with mental health, academics, and a general sense of connection to their classroom. All things Drawn has seen in her school, too, but she says there's an upside to all those challenges. I think a lot of people focus on trauma changing the brain, but what they miss is that healing changes it as well. Drawn says there's a lot educators and caregivers can do to help with that healing. Her first tip, have regular check-ins and check-outs with students. Start the day and end the day, like let's set a goal for the day, whether it be I will follow directions or I will be respectful. And then we would check out and see how those goals went. Meeting goals, big or small, can create a sense of achievement and control for kids. That's important because when kids feel out of control, which happened a lot during the pandemic, they can have some big feelings. We have really done a lot of explicit instruction with kids of the circles of control. That's an exercise that visually helps students see what's in and out of their control. And it's just reteaching what we can do when we don't have control over something and how we regain control and regulation over our own feelings and emotions. Those emotions can be hard to regulate, but they also tell a story. All behaviors, at least in children, are communication. An outburst might mean a child is seeking adult attention. Drawn says to try focusing that attention on students' positive behaviors. It might seem very elementary for a fifth grader to walk down the hall, hands by their side, being safe. If that's something that they're working on, I might go up to them and give them that positive attention because if that's what they're really craving, they're going to do it again. Especially since 2020, one of the biggest barriers to regulating emotions in children has been mental health, including anxiety. Drawn has seen more referrals for anxiety at her school, but she thinks that also has to do with increased awareness. Drawn says it's important to make kids aware, too. First, by helping them identify what the symptoms look like. Really thinking of what is anxiety. Well, it's your heart rate increasing. You know, those physiological symptoms. You might start sweating. You're getting fidgety, you're getting nervous. She uses kid-friendly words to describe a feeling that can be complicated. It's extra energy to get out of your body. To get that energy out, she suggests doing something physical, like jumping jacks, or even just allowing a child to fidget freely in their seat. And if jumping through the anxiety doesn't feel right, try breathing it out. Visual aids work really well. Drawn likes to tell students to close their eyes, picture a square, and breathe their way along its sides. You're going to breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe out through your mouth for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, and do that four times. 
Um, And that is forcing your heart rate to slow down. She says using these strategies regularly and consistently can build good habits that last a lifetime and make kids feel like they belong. What are the two things we're going to do? We're going to tell the and make good. You got it. Awesome. I know you're going to rock it today, buddy. Janaki Mehta, NPR News. Sometimes documentaries that kids create about their famous parents are fairly straightforward loving appreciations, but not always. You can also have someone who picks up the camera and be open to a complex and nuanced portrayal of someone who they know and love. With a growing audience for documentaries, we'll look at the ethics around filmmakers pointing the camera at their families tomorrow on All Things Considered. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The largest Catholic parish in the nation is now in California's Central Valley. The recently opened St. Charles Borromeo congregation serves tens of thousands of Catholics each week. Church leaders say the size of the parish is caused in part by a priest shortage. From Valley Public Radio, Esther Quintanilla reports from Visalia. Hours before Mass, a line of parishioners waits to get inside. Charles Blue says being early is normal for his family. Always early to church. That's just my belief. I always want to be early to church. Yeah, I don't want to be way in the back. His wife, Carrie Blue, can't wait to go inside. I'm kind of wanting that feeling of walking in and saying, this is home. This is where we were meant to be. On the first Sunday St. Charles Borromeo opened, thousands filed in. A beam of sunlight shone through the skylight above the altar. A mural depicting saints floating in the cosmos looked down at the pews where the blues took their seat. In the days leading up to the inaugural service, Father Alex Chavez was thrilled to show off the building. You see the dome and what you see up in the clouds, that's taken from the Hubble telescope. Chavez says each piece of art in the sanctuary is meaningful. The centerpiece, the Trinity, carved out of wood, sent to us from Spain. The Diocese of Fresno stretches across 200 miles of the largely agricultural San Joaquin Valley. The painting behind the pulpit depicts rows of tomatoes, peppers, and other vegetables grown in the region. You see the mural, you see the valley field crop, the valley oak tree that we're known for, the California poppy. You see little patches, the valley, the Sierras. That's us. That's our story. St. Charles Borromeo cost $21 million to build and seats more than 3,000 people. Our numbers are, are growing, the numbers of Catholics in this area. That's Bishop Joseph Brennan, the head of the diocese, which has more than a million registered members. The other side of that coin is the diminishing numbers of, of priests. He says St. Charles was envisioned to combat that issue. This is an attempt on that practical level uh, to create a place where uh, we could have a number of services without uh, really diminishing the, <laughs> the, the health and well-being of, of our priests. Researchers at Georgetown University have found the number of Catholic priests in the U.S. has dropped by more than half over the last five decades. That means individual parishes need to be larger. 
Here in Fresno, there are 169 priests serving 137 congregations. Mark Gray is with the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown. He says the shortage is caused by various factors, including multiple years of schooling, the requirement of celibacy, and communities not talking about priesthood as an option. There's not a lot of encouragement anymore. Fewer tend to choose that path in life. Gray says that mega-congregations, like St. Charles, relieve stress on smaller parishes in the area. Bishop Brennan says those were overcrowded. Well, this is literally centrally located for the, the diocese of, of Fresno and, and pretty much uh, centrally located for the state of California. But specifically, and, and maybe in a sense selfishly for the diocese of Fresno, it, it's a perfect location to draw people from every corner of the diocese. St. Charles Borromeo expects to serve 14,000 families each week with just three full-time priests. Despite that ratio, Brennan says the pastors there will be able to care for their flock. For NPR News, I'm Hester Quintanilla in Visalia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and coming up in about 15 minutes, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has confounded expectations of his leadership qualities in a transformation with few parallels in modern history. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins picked up their fourth win in a row, defeating the Ottawa Senators 3-1. to one. Before the game, the Bees honored veteran center David Krejci for recently playing in his 1,000th game with the team. It's 58 degrees in Boston, some clouds around tonight, and lows dropping to the low 30s. For Tuesday, a slight chance of snow in the morning, then rain with tomorrow's highs reaching the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. Bernie Sanders is angry, but he says it's okay as long as it's directed at capitalism. We live in the richest country in the history of the world. And you got over 60% of the people living paycheck to paycheck. I grew up in a family living paycheck to paycheck. How Sanders plans to turn his anger into action. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hollywood generally takes a breather in January and February. That pause gives awards contenders time to play out before the Oscars and gives audiences a chance to catch up with holiday attractions. But as Marvel superheroes Ant-Man and the Wasp are proving, moviegoers are also looking for something new. In his spring movie preview, NPR's Bob Mondello says there will be lots of new in theaters before Memorial Day. New, let's note, is in the eye of the beholder, and Hollywood is doing the beholding, so brace yourself for lots of brand new sequels. Introducing the star of our show, his name is Shazam! Shazam 2 brings the return of an accident-prone teen superhero. I don't deserve these powers, if I'm being honest. Like, what am I even contributing? Ow! 
Then there's volume three of another superhero saga. The galaxy still needs its guardians. And we'll kill anyone who gets in our way. No, not kill anyone. Kill a few people. Kill no people. Kill one guy, one stupid guy who no one loves. Now you're just making it sad. Speaking of sad, there's the rival boxer in Creed 3. Try spending half your life in a cell. Why does somebody else live your life? I'm coming for everything. You threatening me? And in John Wick Chapter 4. I'm going to need a gun. It's our hero who's sad. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. Book Club, the next chapter, will strike a lighter note. Wrong. I love this city. I love anything that's falling apart more than I am. Dungeons and Dragons 4 will strike a dumber note. I don't want to see you die, which is why I'm going to leave the room. Scream 6, a more horrific one. And presumably faster and more furious than all of them, Fast 10. You want to see the old Don? Watch. None of this striking you as particularly new? Well, the one would-be blockbuster that's actually new is really seriously old. In the sci-fi thriller 65, Adam Driver pilots a spacecraft. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Send help. Unlikely for an equally unlikely reason. We've crash landed on an uncharted celestial body. That uncharted celestial body is Earth. The title 65 is for 65 million years ago. With all the raptors and T-Rexes, that suggests. That is a lot of action for one season, but there are quieter movies coming too, like Paint, a comedy about a public television personality. It's hard not to feel a little lost as we begin. Played by Owen Wilson. Which is Take it all in. He's a painter on TV, soothing, mellow, walking you through every brushstroke until one day he has competition. Hi, friends, and welcome to Paint with Ambrosia. It takes paint to a whole new place. He didn't want to go to a whole new place. You're entitled to your favorite TV show. It's what makes this country great. Even more low-key, the drama A Good Person, in which survivor guilt meets opioid addiction, meets grief counseling with Morgan Freeman. Allison, don't run away now because of me. There are thousands of meetings. I'll find another one. Well, somehow you found your way to this one. Also trying to rebuild shattered lives, Tim Roth as an alcoholic former boxer with a gay son in Punch. I set up your first professional fight. It's your big break. Dad, I've got a life. And Jake Gyllenhaal in The Covenant as a soldier who owes his life to an Afghan interpreter left behind by America's withdrawal. There is a hook in me. Ahmed and his family are in trouble. We can't intervene. I am going to have to get him out myself. Am I making spring movies sound downbeat? Because they mostly aren't. They just center on a lot of conflict. Even comedies, say the one about a longtime grudge that unites Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, though not as Grace and Frankie. It's called Moving On, which is what Fonda's character is having trouble with. Evelyn, I need to talk to you. About what? I told him I was going to kill him. I could chat. It takes a court order to turn Woody Harrelson into a less conflict-oriented basketball coach in Champions. I will offer you community service. Coaching adults with intellectual disabilities. Okay, fellas, we're going to do a simple ball handling exercise. My girlfriend loves this. Conflict follows a beautiful psychologist in San Francisco when she relocates across the bay in a snowy day in Oakland. Why would somebody smart enough to be a doctor want to put a headshot in this neighborhood? What's wrong with this neighborhood? 
place full of black people. Black people don't talk about their problems. A different psychological approach informs the vampire comedy Renfield, starring the Knicks, Holt, and Cage. Nicholas Holt shows up at a group therapy session with a problem. I need to get out of a toxic relationship. The problem is his boss, controlling, oppressive. You can't get him out of your head. No. What they don't know is how literally Renfield means that. But if you were to stop focusing on his needs, what would happen? He won't grow to full power. Exactly. He won't grow to full power. What? That's so weird. Why would you phrase it like that? But yes. Enter his boss, played by Nicolas Cage. Are you here for the meeting? Well, come on. No! No! I am the action. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. There are also comedies for younger viewers, an adaptation of Judy Bloom's classic novel of a 12-year-old who grows up in an interfaith family. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. That's the title, cue the sixth grade mortification. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. There's also the animated kid flick, Mummies, which brings some ancient Egyptians to... The world of the living. You're not alone, you have a team. And that third adaptation of Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers, the world's been waiting for. Come on, Mario! Our big adventure begins now! Happily, there is a corner of the multiplex that'll be devoted to more down-to-earth fare, biopics and stories based on real life. The Lost King, for instance, about the amateur sleuth who went searching for Britain's Richard III. I'd like to visit his grave. There isn't one. His mortal remains are lost to history. I know I can find him. Also Chevalier, the story of a black 18th century composer who charmed Marie Antoinette, but not her court. Any other country, man of your color, would not be wearing such fine clothes. One day, the whole world will know me. And of course, the music will be spectacular. Two centuries later, as the film Spinning Gold chronicles, the place to find music you'd call spectacular was Casablanca Records, which had contracts with... Yes, the Isley Brothers, Gladys Knight, Parliament, Bill Withers, Donna Summer. They legally changed my name. No! Everything is hotter in summer. There's also a biopic about the rise and fall and rise of heavyweight champion George Foreman. Last time they saw me, I looked like Superman. So now you look like the Michelin Man. This ain't no beauty contest. And Air, the starriest true story, bringing together Viola Davis, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon, is what you might call a product biopic of the shoe that made Nike, back when all the company had was a swoosh. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. So if the competition had the All-Stars, maybe think outside the box. A rookie? Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. But what a rookie. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. A star in the making, a topic Hollywood knows a little something about. Also branding, which will be very big in Hollywood summer, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Pixar, but let's save those for next time. I'm Bob Mandela. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime, from anywhere, with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. 
and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 58 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 5 o'clock, as All Things Considered continues. In about 20 minutes, you'll get the story on advances in stroke recovery using electrical stimulation of the spine. Join us at City Space Monday, March 20th. Former WBUR Morning Edition host Bob Oaks interviews The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik about Gopnik's new book, The Real Work. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. Music Worcester presents an afternoon at the opera at Mechanics Hall, February 26th, worcesterculture.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This week, Ukraine marks the first anniversary of the Russian invasion, and Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has upended expectations about his leadership qualities. He creates this image that I'm one of you. The war only enhanced this feeling. It's Monday, February 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get the story on President Biden's unannounced visit to Kiev. Also, Florida is among a growing number of Republican-led states to ban gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or hormones, for transgender youth. It's so frustrating to hear the rhetoric of parental rights be used to say kids shouldn't have access to treatment because we need to let them be kids. Also, in honor of National Love Your Pet Day, you'll hear about artists considering pets their muses. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is visiting Poland after a short, unannounced trip today to Ukraine, where he met Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Biden's trip to the region comes days ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden will also reaffirm U.S. support of NATO's eastern flank. President Biden plans to meet with Polish President Andrzej Duda, as well as other leaders in the region. The National Security Council spokesman John Kirby noted there are 10,000 American troops in Poland. He says the group of leaders will also discuss efforts to strengthen the NATO alliance and how they can all continue to work together in support of Ukraine. Biden will also give a speech on Tuesday. President Biden will make it clear that the United States will continue to stand with Ukraine, as you've heard him say many times, for as long as it takes. The visit comes as American sentiment has shifted. A growing number of people, particularly Republicans, feel the United States is giving too much aid to Ukraine. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. And Russian forces continue to push into eastern Ukraine, but have yet to make any breakthroughs. NPR's Frank Langford has more from Kyiv. Ukrainian soldiers say Russia has mounted at least 150,000 troops along the front lines in what they describe as the beginning stages of an offensive. But progress so far remains slow. The two sides have battled for months over the eastern city of Bakhmut. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said his troops won't defend it, quote, at any price. In fact, Ukrainian soldiers say a tactical retreat is the sensible course, 
and part of a strategy to damage the larger Russian forces. They also say Russia's Wagner mercenary group continues to send convicts towards Ukrainian trenches. The Ukrainians say that when they shoot the convicts, Russian soldiers then use that information to direct fire on Ukrainian positions. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kyiv. Another strong earthquake has hit the Turkey-Syria border. The magnitude 6.4 quake jolted the same area that was devastated by a massive tremor two weeks ago. Syria's state news agency Sana'a says six people were injured in Aleppo. Buildings fell in other cities, some trapping people inside. This is the death toll from the magnitude 7.8 quake, uh, quake two weeks ago has risen to nearly 45,000. U.S. financial markets were closed today for the President's Day holiday. NPR Scott Horsley reports investors are waiting for fresh clues this week about the Fed's approach to fighting inflation. The Federal Reserve will release minutes from its most recent policy meeting on Wednesday. Fed officials have been saying for some time now that interest rates will likely have to climb higher and stay up longer in order to bring prices under control. That message, which investors resisted at first, has begun to weigh on financial markets. On Friday, the Commerce Department will report its measure of January's inflation rate, which is closely watched by the central bank. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It was 20 years ago tonight that 100 people died in Rhode Island in one of the deadliest nightclub fires in U.S. history. More than 30 of the victims were from Massachusetts. The fire at the station nightclub in West Warwick started shortly after the band Great White took the stage. Flames quickly spread throughout the club, which had no sprinkler system. More than 230 other people were injured in the fire. A Connecticut-based home security company will pay $6.5 million to settle allegations that trapped Massachusetts customers in deceptive contracts. Safe Home Security, Inc. provides home security services for a monthly fee. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office claimed the company ignored customers' attempts to cancel their contracts. The AG's office also claimed the company billed customers for security services when its systems were not functioning. AAA is warning people about a new technique in use by car thieves. The auto club says thieves are using a device to boost the signals of remote key fobs to break into cars and trucks and steal valuables inside. The key fobs use radio signals to unlock vehicle doors. The portable amplifiers used by the thieves trigger and boost the signals of key fobs that are kept close to the vehicles. Some members of the Massachusetts National Guard have been deployed to Kenya. A spokesman for the Massachusetts National Guard says they're taking part in joint exercises with Kenya's military. The exercise brings about 20 countries together to increase readiness for peacekeeping missions. This is public school vacation week in Massachusetts, and options abound for keeping kids engaged until they return to the classroom. Among the possibilities, the Highland Street Foundation's annual winter camp. It offers free activities beginning today in locations from Gloucester to New Bedford. Program director Noreen McMahon says the camp includes zoo days, ice skating, and more. So there's some recreational activities, museums, and they kind of run the gamut in terms of geared towards little kids up to like teenagers. All the foundation's camp activities are free to attend, but McMahon notes some do require pre-registration. In sports this afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins beat the Senators 3-1. to It's 58 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of snow overnight. Tomorrow, a chance of rain highs in the low 40s. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden made an unannounced trip to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, today. One year later, Kyiv stands. And Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. Today's visit by a U.S. president to a war zone was dramatic. It underscored the incredible resilience of Ukraine nearly one year after Russia's invasion. Also, the resilience of the man Biden was standing next to today, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. A year ago, President Zelensky was polling at just 25 percent. Today, some compare him to Winston Churchill, Britain's leader during World War II. As Ukraine marks the first anniversary of the war this week, NPR's Frank Langford explains how Zelensky pulled it off and why some Ukrainians still have doubts about his leadership. Zelensky's transformation began with a decision to stay in Kyiv as Russian forces headed towards the capital. Alexei Arostovich is a former advisor to the office of the president. He was with Zelensky at the beginning of the war. Arostovich says he and others urged the president to move someplace safer. We said, uh, what about Christmas Isle? He said, I stay here. What about uh, saboteurs? I stay here. We're going to kill Mr. President by Russians. We said, I stay here. Say, give, me, give me a machine gun. I stay here. Arostovich says the president was thinking differently than his advisors. He understand if we uh, go out from Kiev, it will be great stress for whole defenders of Ukraine. And we thinking like a military people, he's thinking like a head of the nation. On the second day of the war, Zelensky went out on the streets and stood with his chief of staff, as well as Ukraine's prime minister. The setting, a Baroque building in the heart of Kyiv that all Ukrainians would recognize. Recording on his phone, Zelensky sent this defiant message. We are all here. Our soldiers are here. The citizens are here. We defend our independence. That's how it'll go. People had wondered if Zelensky would flee. Dario Kalenyuk runs the Anti-Corruption Action Center, a public watchdog group. Before war, he was saying there will be no war, relax, everyone. I was thinking, okay, this guy, he's not prepared. He showed the great example by staying in Kyiv. And honestly, it was a surprise for me. Zelensky became famous in Ukraine as a comedic actor. He ran for office in 2019 based on a character he'd created on TV, an earnest high school history teacher who rails against Ukraine's corruption and corrosive politics and becomes president. Zelensky won in a landslide with 73% of the vote. But he put friends from his entertainment career into key government posts for which they had no experience. And critics say... He embraced oligarchs and undermined government oversight. People became disillusioned. Zelensky has controversial reputation. Um, he is a good visionary, but not very good manager. So he surrounds himself with yes mans But his decision to stay in Kyiv transformed public opinion. Irina Fedits is a sociologist with Rating Group one of Ukraine's biggest independent research firms. His actions during the beginning of the war, I think they gained respect from people from different sides of political spectrum, even for those who were critical of him. As if taking on a new role, Zelensky dressed the part. 
He began wearing military olive green. Volodymyr Yamolenko is a philosopher and journalist who runs the website Ukraine World. There was a transformation, and uh, Zelensky is a person who is has this capacity of empathy. He creates this image that I'm one of you. The war only enhanced this feeling because he became much more mature. He has a bird right now. He is doing physical exercises, so he's trying really to look like a warrior. Zelensky rallied international support. Six days into the invasion, he addressed the European Parliament by video. The English translator wept. We're fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Zelensky's team tailored each address to its audience. Speaking to the U.S. Congress in December, this time in English, he invoked another wartime leader. I recall the words of the President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The American people in their righteous might will win to absolute victory. The Ukrainian people will win too. Absolutely. The result? NATO allies have sent more than $40 billion in weapons to Ukraine. To appreciate the turnaround this marked for Zelensky, consider his performance leading up to the war. I saw him in the Kherson region less than two weeks before the invasion. He was there to observe drills to defend against Russian sabotage. So we're just about 15 miles north of Russian-occupied Crimea, and we're watching the National Guard and the police officers here uh, stage a counterterrorism attack. Afterwards, Zelensky gave an impromptu news conference. He was defensive and confusing. U.S. officials had warned Russia would launch a massive invasion. Zelensky downplayed it. I believe that today in the information space, there is too much information about a full-scale war on the part of the Russian Federation. Then the president asked foreign reporters, standing there on the street, to provide him with intelligence. If there is any additional information about a 100% invasion started by the Russian Federation into Ukraine, please give us this information. In a later interview with The Washington Post, Zelensky acknowledged he knew an invasion was coming. But he said he didn't tell the Ukrainian people to prevent panic and damage the country's economy. Many here seem to accept that. But they also say Zelensky's government failed to prepare the country to defend itself. Tatiana Chornovol used to serve in Ukraine's parliament. I met her at a farmhouse in the Kherson region last fall. She's in the army now and delighted in showing me around a basement where she stored the anti-tank missiles she fires. Chornoval says that before the war, the Ukrainian army left the route north of Kyiv open to invasion, even failing to mine bridges to stop a Russian advance. What was done was simply criminal. There was no preparation for the invasion in order to prevent it. Kyiv was not fortified in any way. The situation was even worse in the south. The Russians rolled into Kherson almost unimpeded. Jack Watling is a leading analyst of the war. He works at the Royal United Services Institute, a London think tank. A number of Ukrainian officers before the war started were very clear that they didn't have sufficient troops in the area, and they thought that was a major vulnerability. There was supposed to be about a brigade and a half of troops on that axis, and they were not in position. 
certainly in the South, the level of collaboration with the Russians was higher than in other areas. Former leaders in the region also say an area near the border with Crimea was demined before the Russians invaded. Ivana Klimpush-Sensatsa is a Ukrainian lawmaker with the opposition European Solidarity Party. She says it's not certain exactly when this happened. But it seems that it's probably about 10 days before the full-scale invasion. Why would you do that in th- at a time when your country's threatened with invasion and the Pentagon saying they're going to come from every angle? We will be asking these questions right after the victory. <laughs> People here blame the swift loss of the South on the SBU, Ukraine's intelligence service. In July, Zelensky fired the head of the SBU, Ivan Bakanov. Bakanov was a longtime friend of Zelensky's with no security experience. Daria Kalinyuk says the episode illustrates the president's limitations. He's a good president of war. He mobilized citizens. He's not a very good president during non-war period. And his largest weakness is that he trusts to people who are his friends and he is not tolerating different opinions. Zelensky grew up in the southern industrial city of Krivary. Alina Fialko Small was an actor there at the time. She said Zelensky used to watch her troop perform and sought advice on becoming a dramatic actor. She discouraged Zelensky, who stands under five foot six. I said, Vova, you are small, you have a hoarse voice, you're useless. I said, go in some other direction. She suggested comedy. Zelensky studied law at Krivery Economic Institute. Natalia Voloshunyuk, a finance professor, recalled him as clever, funny, and self-confident. One day, she said, another professor was unhappy with his behavior and confronted Volodymyr in the hallway. She made a remark to him that he was doing something wrong. Then she said, you should be proud that you study at this university. To which she replied, one day you will be proud that you taught me. Zelensky's career path has been audacious and inventive. Comedic actor, entertainment mogul, and now, most improbable, global symbol of democracy. Yermolenko, the Ukrainian philosopher, thinks Zelensky's shape-shifting nature is a way to understand him and to understand Ukraine, since it became an independent country some three decades ago. The Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, out of this... Anarchy can create something new. Uh, So I think Zelensky is one of those people. The good thing is that uh, these people think that impossible is nothing and you can create anything. The bad thing, he says, amateurs can end up in crucial positions. Yermolenko didn't vote for Zelensky. He's not sure he'll vote for him in the next election, whenever that is. But he says this of Ukraine's president. People really recognize themselves in him identify themselves with him, or he identifies himself with the people. And in the midst of this war, he says, that has been Zelensky's most important quality. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kherson. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. 
It's 518 and coming up in about 25 minutes with the NBA All-Star Weekend in the rearview mirror, you will hear about the evolution of pro basketball and the slam dunk. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University, educating the exceptionally competent and socially conscious business leader. Learn more at leslie.edu. The average price of gasoline in Massachusetts has fallen to three thirty-five a gallon. AAA says that is four cents lower than a week ago and twenty cents lower than at this time last year. In Boston, the average price is three thirty-six a gallon. Franklin County has the lowest average in the state at three twenty-two a gallon. On Wall Street, the stock market was closed today for the federal holiday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org. Join Consalsa host Jose Masso Friday, March 10th at City Space for an evening of live salsa music along with dancing and conversation. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 57 degrees in Boston. Clouds around tonight, lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a chance of some rain, mainly late in the day, and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Each year in the U.S., about 800,000 people have a stroke. Many are left with limited use of one arm and hand. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study that shows it's possible to restore a disabled arm by electrically stimulating the spine. As a teenager, Heather Rendulic liked to run and ride horses. Then, in her early 20s, she had a series of strokes. Rendulic says the last one was the worst. I woke up and I couldn't move the whole left side of my body. Surgeons were able to remove the malformed blood vessels in her brain that had caused her strokes. But the damage was done. It took me almost two years to walk on my own unassisted. And I did start moving my affected arm probably about a year in. But the arm remained impaired. For example, Rendulic could close her hand but not open it. That left her unable to tie her own shoes, open a jar, or chop vegetables. You don't realize how many things you need two hands for until you only have one good one. So nearly a decade after her strokes, Rendulic volunteered for a study at the University of Pittsburgh. Researchers there knew that in most people like Rendulic, the brain is still sending signals through the spine to the muscles that control the arm and hand. Marco Cavagrosso says the problem is that those signals are very weak. We wanted to pick up on these weak signals and essentially turn them into functional output so that a person would be able to control their own hand voluntarily. They plan to do this by delivering pulses of electricity to nerve cells in the spine. The electricity makes these nerve cells more responsive or excitable, which helps signals from the brain get through. 
And when they did this in animals, Capagrosso says, the team was able to restore arm and hand function. If you carefully place the electrodes inside the spinal cord, you can direct this excitability, essentially, towards the the muscles that you more need, for example, towards the shoulder or towards the hand. Capagrosso's team was pretty sure the approach would work in people. But we didn't expect the amount of movement recovery that we observed. Heather Rendulik was the first person they treated. A surgeon used a large needle to place the electrodes in her spine. I had wires, like, hanging out of my back, but they had them taped up. Later in the lab, researchers turned on the power. Rendulik says the effect was immediate. I was opening my hand in ways that I haven't in 10 years, and my husband and my mom were with us, and we all were in tears. A video shows the difference. Elvira Pirandini, another member of the Pittsburgh team, describes Rendulik trying to pick up a can of soup. And as you can see, she can't really do anything with her hand. But when the stimulation is on, she can reach the soup and she can grab the can and also elevate it. Pirandini says the treatment also improved something many stroke patients lose, the ability to sense the position of her arm and hand without looking at them. When the stimulation was on, it was much easier for her to understand where her arm was located in space. The electrodes were removed from Rendulic and a second patient after the month-long experiment ended. Perundini says the results, which appear in the journal Nature Medicine, suggest that spinal stimulation could soon reach many more stroke patients. This is a technology that is used for pain treatment, and there are thousands of people implanted. So the technology is there. And already approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Walter Koroschetz directs the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke, which helped fund the research. I don't see any deal-breakers on the way of getting this to patients. And Korshet says even though this study involved only two patients, it hints at a big change in stroke rehabilitation. I suspect that these people felt something quite profound when they were able to move again. To get that story out, it put a lot of hope out there for people who were severely disabled after their strokes. People like Heather Rendulik, John Hamilton, NPR News. Every day, millions of people around the world post pictures and videos of their pets online. The tradition of creating and sharing such images actually goes back about 300 years in painting and sculpture. In honor of National Love Your Pet Day, NPR's Chloe Veltman brings us a story about the artists who love their pets so much they use them as inspiration for their work. At the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, there's a captivating self-portrait of the artist Joan Brown, locked in an embrace with Donald, her resplendent tabby cat. She is holding onto Donald so tightly. It's not just an embrace, it's something more. Curator Nancy Lim says between the 1960s and 80s, the San Francisco artist, who's the subject of a major retrospective at the museum right now, painted dozens of pictures of her pets. The cats and dogs in her work seem fully present, self-aware and all-knowing. In this painting, Donald has an especially frank look in his big yellow eyes. She considered him very wise, someone who could carry on human conversation if he could. Donald was more than a close companion to Brown. Lim says he was also a business asset. She decided to list him as an income deduction because he was a living model. The IRS audited the artist for attempting to deduct cat food and vet bills on her tax return. 
but Brown successfully argued her case and her cat thereafter earned himself a nickname. Donald the deductible. Sahar Corey is impressed with Joan Brown's chutzpah. I'm so scared of the IRS I won't even claim my gas. The Oakland, California-based artist is touring the exhibition with her service animal, Esther, an adorable, curly-haired, floppy-eared white mutt. She's currently maybe around 14 and travels with me everywhere I go. Unwillingly has become a part of my work. Over the years, Corey has crafted many sculptures featuring her pets, including a fantastical circus-style pyramid of 15 glazed ceramic esters perching on each other's backs. Corey says, just like Joan Brown, her pets, she has a cat named Lola too, are part of her everyday landscape. You're just archiving your daily life, and I can't imagine not having the animals be, I guess, a part of that. The history of artists drawing inspiration from non-human animals goes back to the beginning of the history of art. That's Alan Braddock. He's an art historian at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. But making portraits of pets really is a more modern phenomenon and largely in the Western world. Braddock says the tradition is rooted in Western philosophical notions of human individualism. Basically, pets are fully realised beings rather than just dumb animals. One of the earliest examples is the British satirical artist William Hogarth's 1745 self-portrait titled The Painter and His Pug. Right there in the foreground is his pug dog named Trump, of all things. Hogarth loved his dog and saw the dog as a kind of emblem of his own pugnaciousness as an artist. Many artists followed suit, like Pablo Picasso with his studies of lump, an adored dash hunt, and Frida Kahlo, whose self-portraits often feature her pet monkeys and parrots. She admired the animal's creativity and saw it as a reflection of her own. Some artists who portray other people's pets feel this same sense of affinity. Jesse Friedin worked as a professional dog photographer for 15 years. He's best known for a series of portraits of assorted canines dressed up as Lady Gaga. Just put your paws up, because you were born this way, baby. Friedin says the art he makes with dogs aims to get at something deeper than cuteness, though the doggy gargars are admittedly very cute. I do want to articulate something about my human condition and experience. An animal becomes this exterior representation. And it's powerful. He adds, when artists make portraits of pets, they're often really making portraits of themselves. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529. And coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about the New Orleans sound in Havana. High school musicians from Louisiana are finding common ground with students at a Cuban conservatory. Join us at City Space Tuesday, March 14th, to celebrate National Pi Day. Pi as in 3.14 and as in the date. You'll meet Lauren Coe Baker, an author of the New York Times bestselling cookbook, Piometry. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It's 57 degrees in Boston. Clouds around tonight, lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a chance of some rain, mainly late in the day. Tuesday's highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, 
but maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is set to deliver remarks from Poland tomorrow ahead of the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. During a surprise trip to the Ukrainian capital today, Biden underscored Ukraine's resiliency and pledged additional support as the conflict enters a new volatile phase. One year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. The Ukrainian military has warned that it will be ready to respond to any possible provocative actions by Russia around the anniversary of the invasion. Hundreds of Michigan State University students are peacefully protesting outside of the state capitol building for tougher laws on guns. As Michelle Jokish-Polo of member station WKAR reports, the demonstration comes nearly a week after a shooter killed three students and critically wounded five others on the campus. Carrying protest signs, MSU students lined up in rows on the lawn in front of the Michigan Capitol building. Gabrielle Bain is a sophomore studying business. Last Monday, she spent several hours barricading herself inside a locked room in a building on campus. With this speech, I ask for you to fight with us and for us, to bring justice to victims everywhere, and help end gun violence through passing sensible gun laws and restricting who can gain access to firearms. Bain also urged university officials to consider installing devices to prevent anyone outside of the MSU community from entering buildings without a key card. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishpolo in Lansing. Wall Street is closed today for the President's Day holiday. Trading resumes tomorrow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tonight is the 20th anniversary of the Station nightclub fire in Rhode Island. 100 people died in the fire, including more than 30 people from Massachusetts. At least 230 other people were injured. Survivors, first responders, and elected officials gathered yesterday for a memorial mass in Warwick. Father Bob Marciano was among the speakers. Even though 20 years has passed since that fateful night that changed so many lives forever, pain may remain. Yet our consolation comes not from answers for our head, but rather from comfort for our hearts. A public memorial at the site of the nightclub fire opened in 2017. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss is among a delegation taking part in a five-day trip to Taiwan. The group met with the head of the Taiwanese legislature and is expected to meet with the president of Taiwan. Auchincloss is a member of the new House Select Committee focused on competition with China. Tensions between the U.S. and China are on the rise after the Biden administration accused China of sending a spy balloon that the U.S. shot down. China also has indicated it might provide weapons to Russia for its war in Ukraine. State police have found a five-year-old boy with autism who went missing from his home in Oakham this morning. Police say they found the nonverbal boy walking with his dog along a path of power lines that cut through the forest in the Worcester County town. They say both are in good condition and are back at home. 
As of last November, Massachusetts residents can no longer throw out an old mattress in the trash. State Senator Edward Kennedy says some communities have mattress recycling available, but many do not. He's filed a bill that would look for ways to make mattresses recyclable statewide. Kennedy says he filed similar legislation during the last session. I think one of the roadblocks during the last session was the mattress companies because they would be paying some money for this. So hopefully we'll be able to work that out and we come up with language that will be or an amendment to the bill that I filed that will make it be palatable to everybody. He says the state needs to find a solution or else there will just be old used mattresses all over the place. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. At the Garden this afternoon, the Bruins beat the Ottawa Senators 3-1. to one. It's 57 degrees in Boston with lows in the mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of rain mainly late in the day. Tuesday's high is in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden is in Poland tonight after a daring and unexpected stop in Kyiv today. Biden arrived just shy of a year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He spent the visit with President Volodymyr Zelensky, who called this the most important visit in U.S.-Ukrainian history. NPR's Joanna Kakissis was among a small group of journalists who joined the two presidents for the meeting. Retired banker Nina Albul says she had a feeling something big was going to happen this morning. She noticed the city center in Kyiv was blocked and people were everywhere. She wondered, what's going on? And then I saw on the news that Joe Biden came here. And I couldn't believe it. I phoned and texted everyone I knew and I asked, is it true or am I hallucinating? She says Biden's visit touched her so much she cried. Our young men and women are fighting to keep Ukraine free. And here is this famous man visiting us in the middle of a war. A year ago, many predicted Ukraine and its capital would fall to Russia within days. Today, President Biden was in Kyiv, standing side by side with Zelensky. You and all Ukrainians... Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. Biden recalled calling Zelensky the night Russia invaded almost a year ago on February 24th. You told me that you could hear the explosions in the background. I'll never forget that. And the world was about to change. I remember it vividly. Because I asked you, I asked you next, I asked you, what is there, Mr. President? What can I do for you? How can I be of help? 
Zelensky said, get the world to support Ukraine. Biden says he did just that. And the Western coalition has stuck together. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us, not sticking together. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. Biden said sanctions have weakened the Russian economy and that the U.S. would seek even more of them. And Biden announced that he's seeking another half a billion dollars in aid for Ukraine, something which energized Zelensky. Such a hefty aid package is an unambiguous signal that Russian attempts to take revenge on Ukraine will be fruitless. Zelensky also laid out his plan for peace with Russia. It includes giving Ukraine NATO-style security guarantees and forcing Russia to return Ukrainian territory it has taken by force. He suggested Biden likes his plan. We agree on most points of my peace formula. It's a security imperative to restore the UN Charter and to defend an international order based on human rights. After their speeches, the two presidents paid tribute at a makeshift memorial to Ukrainians who have been killed fighting Russian forces. The memorial is outside St. Michael's, the Golden Dome Cathedral that serves as the headquarters of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And as the two presidents walked inside, an air raid siren went off a sign that Ukraine is still very much a country at war. Joanna Kakesis, NPR News, Kyiv. We are seeing a growing number of Republican-led states move to ban gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth under the age of 18. That care includes puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Last Monday, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem signed such a bill into law. A few weeks ago, Utah Governor Spencer Cox did the same. And with the urging of Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida took a different tact. It prohibited gender-affirming care for trans youth through a vote of its medical boards. Well, NPR's Melissa Block has been tracking this trend and spent time this month reporting on it in Florida. She's here now. Hey, Melissa. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey, so give me some the the bigger landscape to understand this, because I just mentioned several states, but you're watching more. Yeah, it can be pretty hard to keep up because these bills are popping up all over. I spoke with a lawyer in Florida who fights these bills, and she compared it to a game of whack-a-mole. This year alone, we've seen about 83 bills related to gender-affirming care introduced all around the country. I'm keeping an eye especially on bills in Mississippi, Tennessee, Missouri, Oklahoma, Montana. Uh, The first two states that banned gender-affirming care were Alabama and Arkansas. Those bans have been blocked, at least temporarily, by federal courts. One more thing I should mention here, when Florida's medical boards voted to ban care, they called it risky and experimental that does go against the consensus from dozens of major U.S. medical groups. They say these treatments are time-tested, effective, and potentially life-saving. And generally speaking, how similar are all these state bills? Are they roughly the same in what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, and, and a lot of the language is virtually identical, which probably goes back to the fact that some of these bills have been written with help from conservative Christian groups. South Dakota's law 
has one interesting point. It not only bans gender-affirming care, it also requires doctors to medically withdraw hormonal treatment from minors, existing patients, these would be, to taper them off those medications by the end of this year. Doctors I've spoken with say that that can be highly traumatic. It would force trans youth to revert back into a gender that may cause them great distress. And all of this raises all kinds of questions, Mary Louise. What do families with trans kids do? Do they cross state lines to get treatment? Can they even afford to do that? Do they go on the black market for hormones? There are so many unknowns with all of this. So many. Um, Tell me about your reporting in Florida. I know you talked with trans kids. You talked to their parents, their doctors. What were they telling you? Yeah, I spoke with a a lot of families with, with trans kids. And one thing that virtually all of them mentioned was the idea of parental rights. As you know, this is something Governor DeSantis campaigns heavily on, parental rights in education, for example. Well, these parents say, hey, what about my parental rights? Why isn't this a private decision made with me as a parent and my child and their doctor free of government interference? I want you to listen to part of a conversation I had along these lines with a woman named Virginia Hamner in Gainesville. She has a 13-year-old trans daughter named Liz. It's a gut punch. It's so frustrating to hear the rhetoric of parental rights be used to say kids shouldn't have access to treatment because we need to let them be kids. When it's like, you're right, and guess what? That's all I want for my kid. And Mary Louise, a number of families that I talked with say they are seriously considering moving out of Florida, that they want to be in states that are more trans-friendly. That was one of the things I talked about with the mom of a 12-year-old trans boy who lives in Tallahassee. She asked us to use only her first name, which is Sandy, because she's worried about retaliation. The fact that you have to consider rehoming your family to have access to health care in the United States in 2023 is ridiculous. I just want my kid to be happy and healthy. And I just don't think that's a lot to ask. And she told me, Mary Louise, my entire support system is here. Why should I have to uproot that? NPR's Melissa Block, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Basketball player Mac McClung won the NBA Slam Dunk Contest this Saturday. He started by leapfrogging over two people, one guy sitting on another guy's shoulders. Tapping the ball on the backboard. Before finally dunking it into the hoop. I'm worried about the guy holding the other guy. Some boy, he gonna go down. Oh, that's a 50. That's a 50. And McClung ended the contest with a 540-degree spin before yamming it home. A couple things made the contest feel special. First, at six foot two, McClung is pretty short for a pro baller. McClung is also in the G League, that's the feeder league for the pros. In my situation, it's, you know, I'm not really worried what other people think, good or bad. I'm just staying the course. You know, my goal is to, you know, make an impact in the NBA, and I'm just going to keep working until, until that happens. Well, NBA stars were impressed. Shaquille O'Neal went so far as to say McClung, quote, saved the dunk contest. It's a competition some NBA fans say has needed a savior because its biggest stars refuse to participate. Fans remember moments like in 2000, when NBA superstar Vince Carter jumped so high he seemed to float as his upper arm balanced from the rim. Can I take a timeout? How can we take a timeout? But NBA writer Katie Heindel sees it differently. 
it hasn't really been this arena for superstars. It's been an arena for NBA kind of up-and-comers. And she says the act of dunking itself is worth celebrating. There's a kind of intense alchemy of not just skill and timing, but like luck. And dunks themselves are inherently the best product of basketball. Heindel admits she's a bit of a dunk contest apologist. She has a tattoo on her arm that reads dunk contest. But she has a point that some of the most fun dunks in NBA history came from players outside the spotlight. Like in 1992, that is when Cedric Sabalos dunked blindfolded. I'm not believing this. Blind, here comes Sabalos. Yes! Or in 1986, when five foot six Spud Webb won the NBA contest over the human highlight reel Dominique Wilkins. Comes through the clutch to put the pressure on Dominique. Spud Webb is now the president of basketball operations for the NBA G League team, the Texas Legends, and he says he's excited for the exposure this contest has brought to the G League and to a potential up and coming NBA player in McClung. You know, I work in the G League, so it sheds light on us too. But I was telling people, man, the guy can play. His energy level, he's, I mean, I, I think it's a place for him. Uh, you hear that, superstars? Keep warm in that bench. It is the G League that owns the future. George Washington, the first U.S. president, never did much for his birthday, according to his Mount Vernon estate. Americans celebrated it anyway. In 1879, his birthday became a federal holiday. But in 1968, Congress standardized most federal holidays so that Washington's holiday landed on the third Monday of February. That is before Washington's actual birthday, February 22nd. That led some states to lump Washington's holiday with President Abraham Lincoln's birthday, February 12th, and some stores started offering long weekend sales. Today, those stores sell items to government workers and school children who have off today for President's Day. But Mount Vernon would remind you, today's federal holiday is still officially called George Washington's birthday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548, and coming up in about half an hour, you'll hear about a video series created by formerly incarcerated people for audiences both inside and outside the system. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu msae. Join us at City Space Sunday, March 12th, for an afternoon of classical and folk music featuring the Boston-based Rasa String Quartet. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It's 57 degrees in Boston, clouds around tonight, lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a chance of rain, mainly late in the day, and highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries free Sundays, and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, 
going to school as an act of resistance. In his new memoir, School Clothes, local author and professor Jarvis Givens collects memories of going to school as a black child in America, including from Boston legends from Phyllis Wheatley to Henry Louis Gates. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Musicians from New Orleans and Cuba are exploring new collaborations that highlight similar sounds like this new song from the New Orleans funk band Galactic and Cuban singer Sima Funk. On a recent cultural exchange to Havana, high school musicians from both places discovered common ground, and NPR's Debbie Elliott followed along. It's a bit chaotic in the band room of the Guillermo Tomas Music School on the outskirts of Havana. Scores of young players tune up their instruments and get ready to learn some new music. Troy Andrews, a.k.a. Trombone Shorty, the New Orleans musician, sits on the front row to take in the performance. They say, do you speak Spanish? I say, I'm from the Treme, so I speak Tremish. Andrews, who grew up in the historic Treme neighborhood, is here for a cultural exchange sponsored in part by his Trombone Shorty Foundation, a program that nurtures budding young artists in his hometown. Eight of them are on this trip, and they're spending the day at this conservatory with Cuban students who have prepared a special song. Andrews is moved to hear them play something that he's recorded, the famous Louis Armstrong song, St. James Infirmary. Troy Andrews first came to Cuba as a young teenager on a similar cultural exchange trip. I never forgot it, and that style of music has always stayed with me because I feel like uh, New Orleans and Havana are like sisters and brothers, you know. The soul, the resilience of the people here is almost identical to what we experience in New Orleans. So that's why when I come here, I don't feel like I'm in a foreign place. He feels those connections in the food, the architecture, and in the way you might hear exuberant music playing in the streets. Now he wants these young musicians to pick up on that. They start to in a free-for-all bi-national jam session. What started as a New Orleans-style brass band second line song morphed into something with Latin flair. So we got bum, 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 da, dun, 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 and that's New Orleans, and then they were going ba-da, ba-da, bum, bum, ba-da, ba-da. So you got the There was no words exchange. It was all music. So there was just one note that made it feel very different, very salsa-like instead of secular. And now it'll be ingrained in our head that we will make an arrangement based off of the way they played it and bring it back to New Orleans, and then that will create a whole nother thing. The students are into it, leaning in with their trumpets and clarinets, each showing the other something new, yet familiar. 
just one day of me being here, I've seen so much that I've never heard. Jordi Santiago Cortez, a clarinet player and high school senior from Kenner, Louisiana, says he feels an emotional pull. So does John Rhodes, a 16-year-old drummer from New Orleans. He says their sounds really meshed. The Latin groove and the big four, the brass band, second line, it all coincides when it comes to us playing together, just the music culture. Say like, no matter where we come from, no matter what language you speak, no matter what race, it like, music is just universal language. These students share more than just a love for music, says Lillian Lombera Herrera, a cultural producer with Horns to Havana, one of the groups involved in this cultural exchange. She's Cuban, but now lives in New Orleans. All of that is part of our same ancestors. People of West African descent brought here during the Atlantic slave trade. Some of the Latin tinge that they said about the flavor of the second lines and of the music come from the Caribbean and it's a fact that it was a big migration from Haiti that came through Cuba and continued to New Orleans. Those Afro-Cuban roots are what Eric Alejandro Iglesias Rodriguez is all about. I'm a Sima Funk, I'm a Cuban artist, and I make Afro-Cuban music. The name Sima Funk is a nod to his heritage. Cimarrons were African captives who escaped slavery. For several years, he's been spending time in New Orleans, collaborating with artists there, including Tank and the Bangas, the Soul Rebels, and now Trombone Shorty. You feel that kind of crazy vibe around, and it's the same on New Orleans. At the same time, all the problems and all the situation, that economic, social, everything, but you feel that the people keep the soul the economic situation in Cuba is dire, with shortages of food and fuel and power blackouts. Record numbers of migrants are fleeing the communist-controlled island. The crisis is a culmination of several things, including the pandemic, U.S. sanctions, and a tight grip on the economy by the one-party government that hasn't followed through on promised economic reforms. Frustrations boiled up in street demonstrations last year that were met with a severe government crisis. Down. New, harsher controls on freedom of expression were put in place. Some artists were jailed and others were forced into exile. Seema Funk says the crackdown is wrong, but he doesn't think fleeing Cuba is the answer. He's hopeful exchanges like this one can open up possibility. All the political scenes and all the, the governmental scenes, it's always hard to talk about that without hurt or without being in one or other side. This interchange, people arriving here, playing for the people, collaborating with young musicians, going to the school to see the kids, that's good. Back at Guillermo Tomas School, the students are working on songs they will perform together as the opening act for a trombone shorty concert in Havana. 14-year-old Juan Licor Doreste has a wide grin as he weaves around the other musicians, snapping his fingers with the beat, a seeming band leader in the making. I play a trumpet. With the help of tour guide Frank Gonzalez, Juan describes this experience. Having the chance of uh, you know exchanging with musicians from New Orleans, he's a jazz lover, so imagine, and being able to do this jam session with them has been amazing. 
Juan is one of several Cuban students to get new instruments from this contingent from the United States, which included tourists who paid to come see concerts put on by both Cuban and New Orleans bands. Juan dreams of someday having his own jazz band. He would like to be a future Wyndham Marsalis. And perhaps one day be a headliner in New Orleans. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Havana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Join us at City Space Thursday, March 9th for a conversation with Julian Shapiro Barnum. He's the host of the web series Recess Ther- Therapy, featuring funny interviews with kids. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. It's 57 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-30s tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of rain, mainly late in the day, and highs in the low 40s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H.com. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is marking the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year with a secret visit to Kyiv and a trip to Poland. It is Monday, February 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, you'll get a report from Plains, Georgia. Former President Jimmy Carter has entered hospice care in his hometown. Hybrid vehicles were the original clean cars, but environmentalists are questioning their role in combating climate change. I believe this wonderful Prius green car eventually will be phased out. Also, a new video series examines life in U.S. prisons and aims to reach people who are incarcerated. It's 601 First This News. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Details of President Biden's secret trip to Ukraine are now being revealed as the president made his way out of Kiev and back into Poland. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the surreptitious trip involved a 10-hour train ride into Kiev with only two journalists along for the ride. Just one print reporter and one photographer traveled the entire journey with the president from Washington to Kiev. They were not allowed to share details of the trip until Biden arrived safely back in Poland. Biden left Washington in the early hours of Sunday morning on Air Force One and arrived at a train station in Poland just across the border from western Ukraine on Sunday night local time. The president, White House staff and the two journalists then embarked on a 10-hour train ride through the night to Kiev. After meeting with Ukrainian President Zelensky, Biden returned to Poland the same way he came. On Tuesday, he's meeting with Polish President Andrzej Duda. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Turkish officials say another strong earthquake has struck the Antakya region, killing at least three people and injuring more than 200. Turkish authorities say the magnitude 6.4 aftershock hit the same region, still reeling from a catastrophic quake two weeks ago. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from the earthquake zone in southeast Turkey. The quake was not as powerful as the one two weeks ago that killed tens of thousands in Turkey and Syria, but it rocked the area as people are still trying to retrieve belongings in their damaged homes. Turkish authorities say several people got trapped in collapsed buildings. The quake was also felt a three-hour drive away in the city of Gaziantep, where city squares were filled with families who rushed out of their homes. The earthquake also shook Syria, where a rescue group reported injuries from falling debris. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Gaziantep. On this President's Day, people are coming to the Carter Center in Atlanta to reflect on the life of former President Jimmy Carter. He started hospice care over the weekend at his home in Plains, Georgia. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE has more. The Carter Center's campus is shaded by pine trees. Tulips and daffodils are now in bloom. Celeste McCullough biked over. She cast her first vote for Carter in 1976. I'm from South Georgia. It was so exciting to see, you know, someone from our part of the world. I just really think he's the conscience of our nation. The museum here isn't normally open on Mondays, but decided to open for free. Kathleen Franzak is visiting from Chicago. This is what Franzak's reflecting on. What is public service and what it means to be a public servant and what it means to be decent, to have integrity? Carter turned 98 in October. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of a New Hampshire-based nonprofit are flying to Poland today. They're headed to Ukraine later this week, ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Common Man for Ukraine will be delivering supplies, including 15 tons of food, 500 sleeping bags, warm clothes, and candy to children at 14 Ukrainian orphanages. The group's co-founder, Susan Matheson, says despite the dangers of traveling to Ukraine, the trip is worth it. Without electricity, the kids are sitting there in their parkas. They're eating a meal by flashlight. When we come in with big smiles and unexpected treats, it's a bright day for the kids. This will be the group's fourth trip to Ukraine since Russia began the war. Common Man for Ukraine also continues accepting donations through its website. Quincy High School officials have canceled the boys' basketball team's final two games of the season. The decision 
follows a locker room fight between a current team member and a former player who quit the team last month. In a letter to parents, school officials said they canceled the season because many team members knew about the upcoming fight and did not report it to their coach or other staff. Police are investigating a deadly early morning shooting in Woburn. Police say just before 4 a.m., officers went to a home on Washington Street and found two men with gunshot wounds. One of the men was already dead. The other was taken to the hospital. No names have been released. Woburn police say they do not believe this was a random act of violence. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin is the acting governor until Thursday night. Both Governor Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll are out of state during school vacation week. Healey's on a family trip to Florida. Driscoll is spending the week with family in Georgia. The John F. Kennedy Library celebrated President's Day with festivities today. Among the events, actors portraying American historical figures took to the stage in a mock news conference. Audrey Stuck-Gerard played First Lady Abigail Adams. Being the wife of the President of the United States, it became more of a duty for me to be on hand nearby. While he was Vice President, we had spent some time with me in Massachusetts simply to save money. The talks will be archived online. The City of Presidents is hosting its annual President's Day Winterfest today. The festival in Quincy runs until 7 this evening. It is 57 degrees in Boston with clouds around tonight and lows dropping to the mid-30s. A chance of some rain tomorrow mainly late in the day and highs in the low 40s. On Wednesday, increasing clouds and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden is now back in Poland after a whirlwind secret trip to Ukraine. In Warsaw, Biden will reiterate that the United States intends to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. His message is for Ukrainians, of course, but also for European allies and American voters at home. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid is on the line now from Warsaw. And Asma, this the secret trip to Kiev. I'm just thinking of the amount of planning and security involved in pulling something like this off. It's mind-boggling. Do we have any more detail on how it came together? It, it really is. Um, it was quite a logistical feat. Uh, administration officials, you know, held a call with reporters shortly after Biden left Kiev, and you know they told us that this was risky, but uh, that ultimately President Biden thought it was worth the risk. Um, we know that he traveled via train from Poland overland, and he really had just a basic skeleton crew with him. Uh, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that this was unprecedented to have the President of the United States visit a war zone where the U.S. military does not have any control of the critical infrastructure. I mean, this is not, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan where there were U.S. boots on the ground. Uh, you know, he told us, though, that Russia was given a heads up. We did notify the Russians that President Biden would be traveling to Kiev. We did so uh, some hours before his departure for deconfliction purposes. And Mary Louise, he would not say how the Russians responded to that message. He did also point out, though, that Russians still control parts of Ukrainian territory. So this trip that Biden made was not, you know, a celebration in his words, but an affirmation of the ongoing commitment from the U.S. Right. To that point, he is planning another big speech tomorrow there in Warsaw. Tell me what you're watching for. 
That's right. Biden is going to be returning to the historic Royal Castle in Warsaw. And he spoke at this very same site 11 months ago. At that time, you know, Russia had just begun the invasion of Ukraine and he was really trying to rally the world to support Ukraine. Um, now here we are just days away from the one year mark of Russia's invasion. And, you know, Biden's returning here to Poland again to make the strategic case. Of course, you know, I would point out that the conflict is at a fundamentally different point now that European security environment has completely changed. And I will say, you know, Biden is abroad. He's here in Poland, but he's no doubt speaking also to a U.S. audience. And I think that point is key because some recent polls have shown that support for the war is softening. A few vocal Republican lawmakers have begun publicly questioning the financial aid that the U.S. is giving Ukraine. And so experts say part of what Biden needs to do on Tuesday is make the case for why this war continues to matter outside of Ukraine. And beyond the big speech tomorrow, what else is on his agenda? He'll be meeting with Poland's president as well. And, you know, I think coming to Poland is in many ways strategic. Poland is this transit for both military equipment and people. You have supplies going into Ukraine. You have refugees who've been coming uh, from Ukraine into Poland, an estimated 1.5 million refugees. Uh, then on Wednesday, Biden will also meet with additional leaders, um, leaders of the Bucharest Nine. This is a group of countries that quite literally are on the front lines of the collective NATO defense and were closely tied with Moscow during the Cold War. The White House says they'll discuss continued efforts to cooperate and support Ukraine. Uh, you know, I will say, though, that ultimately what the president is trying to do here is continue to maintain unity in the face of whatever might unfold with this conflict in the coming months. That is NPR's Asma Khalid in Warsaw traveling with President Biden. Thank you. Happy to do it. Hybrid vehicles are the original clean car, and they're still popular with car shoppers. But when it comes to the fight against climate change, there's a big debate. Are hybrids a help or a hindrance? NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. 25 years ago, adding an electric motor to a gasoline engine was cutting edge. There's a change happening. It begins with Prius. Toyota's revolutionary hybrid vehicle. This ad featured oil pumps snapping free from their bases and walking away. Transportation is finally evolving. But transportation kept evolving beyond gasoline. Today, electric vehicles are the fastest growing sector of the auto market. And prominent voices on climate change now say that hybrids should be history. Catherine Garcia runs the Sierra Club's Clean Transportation for All campaign. She is critical of Toyota for its plan to keep making hybrid vehicles instead of switching to just electrics. Garcia knows this might feel weird. The Prius? An environmental problem? The Prius is a beloved car for many environmentalists. But which is more important, making gas-powered vehicles better? or phasing them out as soon as possible. Right now we are facing a climate crisis and we absolutely need to reduce our dependency on fossil fuel cars. And yes, a hybrid vehicle is better for the planet and human health than a gas guzzler. But all the money and brain power that auto companies put toward developing more hybrids, that's money and brain power they're not putting toward the switch to all electric vehicles. Some people call hybrids a bridge to EVs. But folks like Garcia say building a bridge takes time, and the climate doesn't have the luxury of time. Toyota? still believes in hybrids. Choose Toyota Hybrid. 
The company argues it's worth it to make today's vehicles less bad, even if it makes the overall switch to EVs take longer. You know, I guess we're taking a pragmatic approach to this. Cooper Erickson is with Toyota North America. Everyone agrees a rapid transition to EVs poses enormous challenges. Building vehicles, getting battery minerals, building out charging infrastructure. So Toyota argues don't count hybrids out yet. Yes, they still burn gasoline, but they burn less of it. And they're cheap. They don't need a charger. And their batteries are a lot smaller. So you can make a lot more of them. It's quantum leap better if you use these battery resources in a reasonable way. At this point, the auto industry agrees that gas-powered cars are on their way out eventually. But how long will that take? And what role will hybrids play? Toyota has moved up its timeline for electrification. It's still not as aggressive as many of its peers. And Ericsson says Toyota's comfortable with that. We've been ridiculed for being progressive in greenhouse gas emissions and now we're being ridiculed for not being progressive enough in greenhouse gas emissions. I've seen all this in my career with the company. But this is not just a question of ridicule. There's a big question about requirements. California, New York, and the European Union have all passed laws essentially banning new gas-powered cars by 2035. And that includes traditional hybrids. Margot Ogre used to run transportation and air quality at the EPA. She was thrilled when the first Prius came out. I was one of the first buyers, and I was excited because I want to walk the talk. But these days, in her driveway, you'll find an all-electric car. And her hope for hybrids is that before too long, they're phased out entirely. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. With former President Jimmy Carter in hospice care, today's President's Day observance in his hometown, Plains, Georgia, took on extra meaning. People there were reflecting on Carter's time in office and the work he did in the years that followed. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Grant Blankenship has more from Plains. The centerpiece of the Jimmy Carter National Historic Site is the former Plains High School, Carter's alma mater. And today, the old auditorium, with its folding wooden seats, was decked out as it has been for over a decade on President's Day, with flags, red, white, and blue bunting, and memorabilia belonging to historian Lawrence Cook laid out for his presentation. You know, it's ironic today that I'm giving this presentation on the lesser-known presidents. And I would say, as a historian, I'll make this statement, I believe he's the best-known president around the world. Cook says Carter loves these talks about the nearly forgotten details of presidential history and is usually here on President's Day. This year, of course, is different. And so Cook says he was tempted to change course. But I knew that President Carter would want me to stay with the planned program and not make it all about him. In conversation around Plains, people echo the theme of a selfless Jimmy Carter again and again. Like Carter, Rebecca Davenport is a fan of these President's Day talks and planes. And she has her own piece of memorabilia, a 1977 Carter inaugural pin hanging from her sweater. He's our only president from Georgia, so why not wear it today, right? And it's not a replica, it's the real deal. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so I'm celebrating him today. So what is she celebrating? I think his concern for the underdog as a, someone who might have had a controversial presidency, but afterwards, I think the whole country can confirm that we admire him and his spirit. 
Bernadette Bacchus and Spencer Horn were passing through Plains on vacation when they stopped in the Main Street, across from where out-of-town journalists are already gathering. Bacchus says they like to cram as much history as they can into these road trips. And they came today with knowledge of Carter's condition. Yeah, we were in the hotel room last night, just sitting in the room, just watching TV, and we looked at our phones and we were like, oh my God, he's, you know, he went into hospice care. You know, it's kind of sad. Bacchus says she's read a few of Carter's books, and she wishes more people saw him the way she does. Well, I mean, how do I say this? And he was definitely into human rights, the respect of people, and things like that. And it's just a shame people don't consider him a good president with what, what he did do. Like Bacchus, Angelique Shimon says she was shocked by the news that Carter's in hospice. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of breaking my heart, and I feel very sad for his wife and his family to have such a gentle, sweet soul, you know, leave our world. For Shimon, it's Carter's lived example of the central tenet of his Christian faith that inspires. As they say in the Bible, um, love everybody. It never says love everybody, but it just says love everybody. It's a lesson Shimon says she hopes she remembers even after Carter passes away. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Plains, Georgia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up here on 90.9 WBUR, Inside Story host Lawrence Bartley discusses the video series created by formerly incarcerated people for audiences inside and outside the prison system. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at lesley.edu. Red Sox ticket sales have jumped four and a half percent since this time last year. Red Sox president and CEO Sam Kennedy told Mass Live that around 1.5 million tickets have been sold for the upcoming season. In 2022, the Red Sox finished in last place in the American League East. Opening day this year is March 30th at Fenway Park against the Orioles. On Wall Street, the stock market was closed today for the federal holiday. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Join us at City Space Friday, March 17th for an event featuring Kelly McEvers and Chris Benderev, the host and producer of NPR's documentary-style podcast, Embedded. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It is 55 degrees in Boston, lows overnight dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a chance of some rain, mainly late in the day. Tuesday's high is in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhillFramers.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. 
And I'm Elsa Chang. When Lawrence Bartley was released from prison five years ago, he linked up with the Marshall Project and started reporting on the criminal justice system. Now he's hosting a new show that is airing weekly inside prisons and jails in 48 states. This is Inside Story, the only show about the system by people who lived it. I'm Lawrence Bartley. When I spoke with Bartley, he explained to me that including the perspectives of formerly incarcerated people just makes for richer coverage of the prison system, both for the public who can see the show online and for the people on the inside. There are many incarcerated people that read our journalism and, and news inside or see it in Inside Story and kind of pump their fists in the air like, finally, someone is telling the truth. Finally, we're seeing exactly what's happening. And this is my story. Yeah. Well, let me let me talk about you for a little bit. You served about 27 years in prison overall for multiple convictions, including murder. Mm-hmm. You were only 17 when you were sent to prison. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Let me ask you, how do you think entering prison when you were so young, how do you think that shaped the way you see the criminal justice system today? When you're a 17-year-old going in, you just conditioned to think that adults are there to protect you. Mm-hmm. But I found that adults weren't there to protect me most of the time. Mm-hmm. Plopped into a situation where I had to learn how to shave, I had to learn how to be a man, and navigate the system in a way that was very traumatic to people like me, who were as young as I was. Mm-hmm. But once I was able to get a hang of it in a way that I can survive, then I figure out different defense mechanisms and how to cope with my situation. And that was education. Well, thank God that experience in many ways strengthened you, especially as a journalist. Your first episode delves into how children are treated inside prisons. And, you know, something the lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson said really stuck with me. He was talking about how if a society is going to incarcerate children, it should believe in their ability to change. Mm-hmm. And I think to take away someone's possibility for growth and change is irresponsible. It's punitive without purpose. And a system that punishes people without purpose is a system that loses its legitimacy. You know, Lawrence, I was curious because listening to an interview like this one with Brian Stevenson and other interviews throughout this series, was it difficult to get correctional facilities on board to air these shows? Because in many moments, these shows encourage us to think critically about the way society treats people who are incarcerated. Yes, there's so many different prisons and jails and the way the rules are set up they have the discretion to say what they can let in and what they won't, you know what I mean? But the people who run the facilities are meant to follow those. And a lot of times there's some of them who don't really agree with those rules. So it is my hope that creating a series like this, that we have some of those people who are in the power to say yes or no, to look at it and say, let me look at the way I'm running my facilities to see how it stacks up against what's in this episode. If it's consistent with what's in this episode, I'm hoping that the inherent good in people will say, well, I I need to make some change and and I'm not going to block the episode from coming and I'm going to let people see it. Did you encounter any resistance to airing these shows inside certain prisons or have any correctional facilities tried to exert editorial control over the content of any of these episodes? They cannot. They cannot exert editorial control Did they try? Have any? 
No, they haven't tried, but there have been some states that have said that, oh, no, I don't think we, we want this inside of our facility because it's kind of critical. Yeah. You sit down in the third episode with two Baltimore City police detectives known as Dre and Big H, Andreas Severino and Ralph Horton. They both host a podcast called The Silverback Chronicles. And you had some pretty pointed questions for them about interrogations. And I just want to play a little of one exchange where you reflect on your own experience. When I was arrested, right. I said I want a right to remain silent. They said, yeah, hi, you going to get your in there, and I'm ready right wow. to whoop your mother. Yeah, that policing culture is it up for everybody. Everybody else. Because there's always an old school police culture. There's always an old school business that people just were under and they followed. And that was just how things were done. And that's it is horrible. It really is horrible. We're, sorry, even today, we're sorry that you went through that. That's ridiculous. It's tough to hear, but... Appreciate that. And then Detective Horton goes on to make the point that police reform has been huge, that's his word, that things are changing in police departments in terms of how they treat the people they interact with. Let me ask you, Lawrence, as you have worked with the Marshall Project and reported out stories for Inside Story, have you come away with that same impression? Well, no. When you see what happened with Tyree Nichols in Memphis, that highlights that things haven't changed. We see over and over again people being killed by police officers and not much happened to them. Sure, what, what happened to Derek Chauvin, him being sentenced, that was a step. But there are other people who felt like they don't get justice. So I won't say that the system is not making steps towards change, but I will say the system has a, a long way to go. Yeah. Well... In one of the recurring features in this series, I love that you you also profile formerly incarcerated people who have gone on to lead really productive lives, like Fernando Ruiz, who's an executive chef in Santa Fe now, and Lunel, the comedian. I talked about the strip searches and the degradation of that. And then from the mindset of the person doing it, like, do you know if they're just trying to be professional or they're enjoying it too much? Or, you know, you don't know what's going on in their head. And then the mystery meat with what is this pimento and olive loaf? What the, you know, yeah, that was a lot of comedy that I drew from being in jail. Well, Lunell's been on the HBO show Hacks. She's reportedly got a Netflix special coming up. It made me feel that your series, it isn't just about informing people in prison about the criminal justice system. It's also about giving them hope. Absolutely. You know, people who are incarcerated, including myself, I was told over and over again how horrible I was. But no one tells us that you can be a Lunel. Yeah. No one says you could be a Chef Louise. You know, we've heard tons of feedback from people who are formerly incarcerated or even people who normally thought of people who commit crimes as as folks that should never return back to society, an afterthought, just horrible people, and um, are now kind of softening and looking at people as people. Sure, they committed some bad acts that got them there, but let's give them an opportunity to, to be people because 95% of people who are incarcerated are coming out someday. And, um, this series opens their eyes to what's possible for them, allows them to dream, and allows them to prepare right now from where they are to becoming someone everyone else thought that they couldn't be. Like becoming another Lawrence Bartley. 
<laughs> Lawrence Bartley is co-creator of the new series Inside Story in partnership with Vice News and The Marshall Project. Thank you very much for sharing this time with us, Lawrence. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you so, so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 630 is Marketplace. In about 20 minutes, you'll meet Liz Hansen. The boudoir photographer discusses how her business has transformed recently. And just after that, you'll get the story on the Spanish government's law making it easier for U.S. and European freelancers and entrepreneurs to live and work in Spain. You'll take a look at which people might take advantage of the opportunity to be a digital nomad. Join us at City Space tomorrow. Former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter discusses his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now.